Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is entitled How to Fix Your Relationship with a Partnership Mindset, originally produced and published by Jeff and Sheldon of the Idea Gym Podcast. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy this episode. I'm Jeff. I'm Sheldon. And we have an amazing guest today. Sheldon, tell us. My name is Dr. Finlayson Fife. I, I'm trying to figure out what to give as nuggets because we talk about so much stuff and it's, it's applicable to relationships and to life and how we show up in the world and ownership and our desires versus validation. It is amazing. So great conversation. Listen, don't, don't stop now. What, listen to the end because some of the best nuggets, it's all just build up for the best nuggets. <laughs> <laughs> so without further ado, uh, Dr. Finlayson Fife. So, hi, I'm uh, Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, and I uh, live in Chicago. I am married and have three children, and I am a therapist and coach, and I work primarily with LDS couples around both deeper emotional and sexual intimacy and the challenges that a lot of couples confront when they're trying to work out a a deeper, uh, richer marital friendship. So, and I do a lot in terms of, you know, one-on-one coaching, but also um, online teaching and podcasts. So, so that's me. Well, welcome to the show. We're excited to have you. Really excited. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. We, so our show, just so you know, uh, we're trying to help people take action and that if you take action, no matter how small daily action, you will see results. But implied Mm -hmm. in that is that you kind of know what you want and know what your desires are. So, so that's kind of what we wanted to actually get into sure. with you a little bit is culturally and just bigger picture, both desire in general. And then, you know, if, if the conversation goes that way into sexual desire and whatnot, there seems to be this, this view of do what you want. It'll make you happy, follow your dreams. And then this cultural view, maybe the good Christian yeah. Yeah. man or woman. Denies. That, yeah. Selfless, mm-hmm. wantless, needless. And can, can you just yeah. start with that? Yeah, exactly. So I would say just culturally, we are ambivalent about desire because I think we often have the sense that desire will lead you astray. And if it's your own desires that you will, you know, that the debaucherous, indulgent person is somebody who's attended too much to their desires. And the Christ-like, virtuous person is the one who represses and denies them and puts the desires of others ahead of their own or is trying to figure out what God desires and suppressing their desires. And, you know, there's truth in both, in both of those positions, but I think the, maybe the extremity of each of those ideas actually interferes with us figuring out the virtue of desire and the essentialness of it in our own development. Every time I listen to you, I feel like I have to rewind and like listen to it again to really understand it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Trying to digest that a little bit. Yeah, sure. And so you can ask me to clarify more because I want me to just say a little more about it. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, sure. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I think that the the way that the, the fear of desire where it's legitimate is that we certainly can have our lesser desires, desires from the worst in us that are more about covering up feelings, more about indulging ourselves in ways that are ultimately bad for ourselves and others. And so human beings are, of course, clearly capable of doing this. 
I think where we are wrong, though, is the idea that desires are the problem rather than what is driving the desire and what are we basically appealing to when we listen to our desires. Is it something higher in us, something that will make us better and stronger and our relationships better and stronger, or something that will undermine us, even though it may feel good in the moment? So indulgent desire, we should be anxious about. We should be cautious around But desire that expands us, pressures our development, pressures us to kind of define a self in the world through our choices, that's the kind of desire that actually drives us forward. And a lot of us think, oh, it has to come from this place of should, somebody else telling you who to be and what to be if it's going to be virtuous. And I think that's also a very problematic idea. Yeah. So I guess my question is, where, where do you start with someone in this regard? When you first meet a patient or some coaching client, mm-hmm. what's normally like a starting point for them? Because I feel like a well, lot of yeah, our audience so, might be in that position. Sure. Well, first of all, it's kind of looking at how they are in relationship to their desires. Sometimes I work with somebody who runs the show in their family and in their marriage because if they have a want, it should be accommodated. So there's a high... For some people, there's a high sense of entitlement and they, they use the fact of their desires or their emotions to basically get everybody else to support and validate what they want, which is, is off. Okay? It's, mm-hmm. it's taking advantage of other people. For other people, usually the people partnered with that person, okay, the person partnered with that person is in a repressive relationship to their desires. So they accommodate, they try to regulate the marriage by putting what they want aside. And oftentimes those are people that have grown up learning that their desires are a threat or that their desires shouldn't have a place in their relationships. So they're naturally kind of drawn to somebody whose desires tend to dominate. So for that person, they are so accustomed to pushing down what they want and they may have have a lot of resentment Mm -hmm. and may have a very limited sense of their own strength, but they are not accustomed to really thinking about what they want. And so I will relate to that differently around helping them see two things. One is that their desires are operating within the relationship already, but in a way that creates more trouble for them. And also helping them start to attend to their own interests and desires. And one way to, when I say that it's operating in the marriage already or in the relationship, you know, even if it's a single person who does this in the relationships, it's often operating in the frame of resentment. So I will accommodate you because I want you to be happy with me and I don't want to take the risk of exposing who I am through claiming my desires. So I'll take the sort of safer path, but then I'll want you to be somebody who figures out my desires and gives them to me because I'm sacrificing for you. So often there's this covert contract that's in operation that's unarticulated. And when the, let's just do it in the Cinderella Prince model, because this is often how it plays out. (laughs) And the prince, you know, I'll I'll kind of ride off on your horse and, and, and back you up. But if you don't attend to my desires and make me feel good about me and my life, I'm going to resent you. So there's a kind of inherent dependency in that keeps the person who tends to suppress her desires. Let's go with it that way for a minute. If she's suppressing her desires, she's going to, she's negating her responsibility to herself to her own self-development and also taking her equal place in the partnership. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of inherent dependency. Let's say the man in this, the prince, (laughs) may look stronger 
in some ways because he's confident, so to speak, knows what he wants, you know, is more entitled, but it looks stronger than it is because it's the kind of demand that other people capitulate and regulate around that, which is also a weak position because it's inherently dependent on other people supporting it and propping it up. Mm-hmm. I imagine most people fairly quickly know which type they are when yeah. you're talking with them. Yeah, probably. Although you might be surprised. I have a lot of entitled people who think they're the selfless one. They're like, you know, I talk <laughs> that about seems these probably real losing. accurate. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, interesting. Funny. it's funny to me because I, I talk about these losing strategies and everybody comes back and everybody's losing strategy is resentful accommodation. I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, you know, it's that. So a lot of times people attend to even the person who can be kind of entitled and pushy, I, I, I'm just going to do it in a stereotypical way, even though women definitely can do this. But like, if let's say it's an entitled and pushy man, well, he definitely feels like he doesn't get the sexual intimacy he wants. He doesn't get the validation he wants. So he feels like a victim because he's doing so much and he's the strong one that's always accommodating. So he's attending to this feeling in him that he doesn't get the control he thinks he's entitled to and then uses that to say he's the nice one that's accommodating too much rather than seeing how hard it would be to be in relationship relationship with him because he extracts a lot. He demands a lot. And so a lot of times we're blind. We, we are very aware of where we don't get what we want. Or let's do the opposite way. I think a lot of women often take up a kind of martyr anger position and through their anger about their selflessness and how they feel taken advantage of kind of run the family from a place of I'm never, I'm, I'm selflessly giving everything. Nobody takes good enough care of me. And in fact, They've got the whole family regulated around her anger. So she would say, like, I'm the good one here. And really, she's the bully from a one-down position. She's the one who runs the show. Yeah, Uh, from a victim position. A victim mentality, yeah. That's right. And, of course, men can do this, too. So it's it's not... as gendered as I'm making it sound, you know, but we, but we can hide from our own indulgence very, very easily. It's interesting because in my wife and I have taken your relationship course and some of those tendencies, I think we both, that victimhood of like withdrawing and, and wanting the other, you know, trying to accommodate each other. All of a sudden we finally get to talking. We both realize we've both been tiptoeing around each other. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and when you're tiptoeing like that, it can look nicer than it is because the tiptoeing is often like I am afraid to be honest because I'm afraid of the dysregulation that will happen in my partner. Uh So because I can't handle you being unhappy with me, I'm going to not be honest in the relationship. And I think that's disrespectful to both people. It's weak for both. So, And often both people are doing that. They can't handle the dysregulation of being honest. And so they, they participate together in creating a low intimacy or low honesty marriage. Right. Mm-hmm. It looks so, oh, calm sorry. on the surface, but yes. there's not much intimacy and connection. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. So it can look more solid than it is, and it's much more fragile than is obvious. So where does eye. the where does the balance come in? How do you find and and <laughs> that's that's maybe why yeah. they need you as a coach, right? How do you find that that yeah. uh, spot where hey, sure. I can communicate honestly, but I'm not just being like this is what I want, this is what I want, this is what I want, right? Yeah. Rather rather you're looking right. at it from a yeah partnership perspective. So exactly. So this is easier to say than to do, but the goal of a good marriage of a partnership marriage is that you make room for two people to thrive. 
you don't just have one person thriving and then the support staff and the other person, right? And you, which is how a lot of traditional marriage has looked. You have instead two people who belong to the best in themselves and each other. And so in a collaborative, truly equal or partnership marriage, you are willing to deal with where you're weak, where you're indulgent, where your limitations are for the benefit of your partner, but also for the benefit of your self-respect and living to your higher self. When you are willing to challenge your the limitations in you, the selfish part of you, the needy part of you, and really push yourself to grow up, you, you make it easier to create a two-person marriage, a place where another person can be with you and belong to themselves and you. The thing that interferes with being able to belong to yourself and your spouse is if your spouse is needy. And we all start out needy in a sense. But what I mean by that is if my spouse can't handle me being honest, then I feel like in order for me to have peace and belong to my spouse, I need to be dishonest, which is to not belong to myself. If I need you to not be upset with me, for me to feel at peace, then I'm going to betray myself to manage you. And it might look good on the surface, but then there's only room for us belong being together, but not room for me to be here. And the more people do that kind of thing, the more the marriage is crumbling without people even realizing it. If though you say, look, I want to belong to myself, but I don't want to bully you. I don't want you to not have a home. So this really matters to me, but I'm willing to understand what you don't like about that. And I'm willing to deal with the invalidation and the conflict to figure out where you're right and where I'm right, or another way, where I'm wrong and where you're wrong. And is there some way that we can bring this together and appeal to something better in both of us? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that earnest endeavor helps people develop. You have, I'm sure you probably have lots of examples, just, um, I know there's, there's the stereotypical, but everybody's different. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just kind of some examples of Of many stories. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I was just talking to a couple this morning who was grappling with this. So she was saying, I really want a way for us to create more ritual in our family so that our kids have more of a kind of traditions as a family to work with. Mm -hmm. And so she brings that up as an honest desire. And she's somebody who tends to suppress and resent. But So she's now bringing something stronger and saying, I really want to do that. And I want us to have some of our own traditions, not just ones linked to the church or to our extended family. And the husband's response was, I feel like the, what you're doing is you just, you just want me to come on board and help you with your true relationship, which is with the kids. Because there's been a pattern in that marriage where she finds her intimacy with the kids because it's hard for her to belong to herself with him because mm-hmm. he's quite dominant. So she goes and finds it with the kids and then he feels resentful of that and then gets more entitled and frustrated and resentful of the kids, which makes her pull away from him and reinforce the bond with the kids. So that's been their historical pattern. They're doing better, but it's vulnerable because they're, they're feeling their way towards something stronger. And so she brings this up, like, I really would like for us to create more traditions. And so he immediately goes to his sense of feeling threatened. Mm-hmm. Because the last thing I want to do is invest in more stuff with with stupid kids. Again, that's not what he said, but you know, <laughs> but like they're, they're love them, but resentful. Yeah, yeah, they're my. The they're sentiment my was there. Yeah, exactly. They're my threat, and that's the last thing I want to do. And 
And she's saying, and he's saying, we need to have a better relationship. That's what's going to help the kids most. Well, the thing is, I said to them, you're both right. You're both right. Mm -hmm. So can you each struggle with how you look for how your spouse is right and what's true in your own position and offer a different possibility? And so she thought about it and she said, he is right. You know, he's right because I have neglected the relationship. I know this is our pattern. I know we're vulnerable and I really want to be partnered with him. And so I need to stay honest and stay in conversation with him that we can create something that we can stand by as a couple with our kids. Uh, But it's also true that the, the, the fact of creating a tradition for our kids isn't a negligence of him. And it really does matter to me so it's important for me to stand up for it, even though a big part of me wants to just pull away and resent him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so she stayed honest and actually, you know, Einstein said something like, you can't problem at the level at which the problem was created. She's saying we have a problem. She's tempted to stay at the level of, I'm not going to stay honest. I'm just going to pull away and resent this guy. And then think of myself as the good parent, the one that's invested in the kids. And instead of doing that, she pushed herself to think about where he's right address where he's right and address where she's right and say, look, I agree with you. What if we do this together? And so the way she's saying, I acknowledge what you have felt. I want to create something together. I'm open to what you think would be ideal. And he was more able to join her in that partnering idea. And he sort of started to indulge in his victim energy. And then he kind of stopped himself and then went back to yeah, I think we could do this. I like the idea of doing this. And so what happened is they came together in a partnered way while creating more structure for their children. Mm. So the desires in both of them were attended to while neither went down their self-righteous path. <laughs> Which yeah. is so easy to do. You can <laughs> so easy. I yeah. compare it so much to this like the third way, right? There's like that's right. There's not doesn't have to be a compromise. There can be a better way that kind that's of exactly meets, right. Yeah. That's awesome. That's why I, I seldom use the idea of compromise because compromise is you give up something. And I understand that may be what some people will call what I'm talking about, but it's, it's the higher, it's the third way. It's, this, it's pushing both of these people to grow. So not only are they creating more of a marriage and they're becoming better parents, they are just becoming better people in the process of doing this. And that's the best understanding of partnership in my mind is that the conflict is inherent to it. And mm-hmm. if you let it, the conflict drives you into the third way. You can't sit around and be like, way. what's the matter? <laughs> That's right. Exactly. The obstacle is the way. Because otherwise, like, what's the matter with you? You know, like the Jones, they have a great marriage. She never is upset with them, <laughs> you know, whatever. And it's easy to resent the conflict as something's going wrong rather than, of course, there's conflict. Because I partnered with somebody that I'm attracted to. Therefore, she's different than me or he's different than me. And so that's going to create inherent conflict, but it's, ver- it's a value. I mean, I hate it when my husband's right about things because it means I need to grow, but then I'm always <laughs> ultimately, <laughs> I ultimately am grateful because I'm a better person for all the ways that who he has, is, has pushed me to see myself and to see the world and to see him more clearly. Got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, very weird. Some of the questions that we'd had, I realized as we're talking, like it's completely all these questions I kind of prepared beforehand were that from the mentality of someone who perhaps that quiet resentment 
isn't mm-hmm. taking ownership and how to counteract that. But literally, as we speak, I realize it's only half the equation and that half of our audience are probably the opposite. And they mm-hmm. need to learn how to to uh, not bully and domineer. And uh, so right. I want to address that a little bit. How, how sure. if someone's identified as that, like what are some things they can do to, uh, like you said, it's most likely their partner is that quiet resentment and that's right. Yeah. We're in denial yeah. about it. <laughs> that's right. So you want to look at like, why is my partner unhappy with me? Like, what is the thing that they're saying? So you, you kind of want to, you may think you're not a bully or you may not think you're not entitled, but if you're getting that message, you want to at least give it due diligence and really mm-hmm. think about, is there some way that it would be hard to be with me? Because what a lot of people do from the I mean, I kind of hate to use the word bully because it makes it so extreme that it's easy to disidentify with it. But when you're in some form of trying to control the other, okay, whether that's manipulative or pressuring or you make it costly for them to not go along with what you want or you make them feel like an idiot if they don't go along with what you want, you're trying to manage your own sense of self by pressuring others to validate your desires, comply with your desires. If you find that people resent you a lot, uh, you may well be doing that. <laughs> so you know, if you have a spouse who doesn't like to be close to you, it may be that you are somebody who extracts too much yeah. more than you realize. You know, just the same couple that I was working with today, he was, she was saying, sometimes I just feel like when you ask me questions, it feels invasive. And and again, they've come a long way. So they're, they're more self-aware than the typical couple I'm just starting with. And so I find myself just kind of resisting because I feel a little like I'm getting, you know, the life sucked out of me when you start asking me questions. And, and he's, he immediately said, like, I think you're misreading me. I don't think that's what I'm doing. I think I just want to know, what do you think? What do you do? What about? And I just said, you know, you may be right that sometimes she's overreacting because she knows a pattern and she has difficulty holding on to her. She references you so quickly that she may be too quickly kind of letting go of her own sense of self and her own position. But on the other hand, don't be too quick to think that you're just innocently asking questions because your MO tends to be control things, mm. conquer things, solve it and you know make her comply with the right way. You know? And so you have to really look at how quickly you dysregulate and go to that pattern, even in what is a seemingly innocent question, is more around knowing, what do you think? What do you do? Where, you know, it's a more of an attempt to control than you can totally see. So I don't know how clear I'm being right now, but it's just, you want to, if people find it hard to just be with you, or you find they resist you, it may be that you're asking for more than you realize to manage your sense of self. I... Maybe this is admitting too much and I can edit this mm-hmm. out so my wife doesn't go, what are you, what are you saying? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, it took me years to realize that I was, uh, what I was bringing to the, the challenge there was this, uh, I've called it like a, the whiny little, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. And who's attracted to that, right? So. No, definitely. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And, but, and so, yeah, exactly. In sexual desire, no one is drawn to neediness, but women especially are not drawn to neediness. Okay. So for whatever reason, women's sort of archetypal desirable man is not needy. You can mask neediness by being a bully because you can kind temporarily, like at the beginning of a relationship, you can maybe look strong through your confidence and so on. And that might be attractive at first. 
But if you're somebody who can't handle his sense of self and is demanding or pressuring, it masks a neediness. Like, I can't sustain my sense of self without your sexual approval. Mm-hmm. The other version of that, which is also needy and is not, people think that if you're a bully, you're far away from being a wuss, but that's not true. So, I don't know if a wuss is the best word, but, but there's also can be a kind of, <laughs> a kind of a pathetic position, which is I'll do whatever you want. Just love me. Just like make me feel good about me. Give me the, you know, the sexual desire that I want and you know, like prop up my sense of self. And that's also not attractive. And so men have often learned this kind of both an entitlement around sexuality, but then a kind of neediness around it. That is, and this is very much what I'm focused on in the men's course is how do you walk that middle path? What's the third way? How do you not act entitled, be solid in who you are and in the desirability of who you are? Mm-hmm. So that you're not trying to get your wife to show you you're sufficient because she doesn't want to do that in sex. She wants to be able to be open and be with you without having to manage your mind. And so to be a desirable man, you have to be able to manage the question of your own desirability and the legitimacy of your sexuality and the legitimacy of your desires. You know, we often talk about women struggling to legitimize their desires, but men do also, especially, I shouldn't say they especially do, men also struggle with this. It's just often harder to see because it can get played out more into in that one up way because we teach men more to do one up and women to do the overt one down. Yeah, but it masks the vulnerability of both of men and women and the difficulty with exposing who we are and legitimizing our own desires. Yeah, well, and again, it took me years to, and I think it's part of just the culture, you know, Christian culture, and then having that desire, but feeling guilt and even shame for even feeling that way. That's right. And so underlying all of that is, you know, we talk about owning your desires, but even stepping back, like feeling that your desires are bad. Are corrosive, absolutely. And that's the message we give men. I mean, you know, I'm teaching the course right now, so the men are filling out some questions that I'm asking. And it's quite sad for me, honestly, to read some of these responses because you see how much men have been taught that sexuality, you know, in Christian culture, there's often this idea that men are naturally sexual and women are less so and good women accommodate men. But the problem in that is while it feeds a kind of entitlement in men, it's also a deep insecurity because I've got this thing that I do to a woman who doesn't necessarily want it, especially if she's a good woman, but I need her to validate it to make it legitimate for me to do this to her. Do you know, it's just so, if you're just a bully, maybe you're fine doing that, but most men are not. And they, there's a deep ambivalence about, is what I'm doing harmful? Mm-hmm. And if she has her own anxieties about sexuality, how can I legitimize it? And so it's, we're not, we don't do a good job of teaching men and women to be at peace with their inherent sexual nature. and coming to terms with the vulnerability of who we all are as human beings and coming to terms with our desires. What I mean by that is you can validate your desires when you know your desires are not destructive. Mm. And so it means you need to kind of look at, is what I want good? If you can't come to peace with that question, then you're going to be looking for other people to tell you it's good and that will be an inherent dependency that's not desirable and is a burden on the relationship. Yeah. And talk about setting a, set, setting people up for struggles. Oh, 
Uh, I mean, for yeah. men particularly, or, or actually, it's not, it's not yeah. a man's problem. Everything from the extreme of uh, infidelity, and but then the repressiveness of trying to seek that validation in destructive things like pornography and other. That's right, and 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 you know, the more that we struggle, I mean, this is not just a religious problem. This is a human problem. But like to be able to grow up enough to come to peace with who we are, and to come to peace with our sexual nature, and to be to feel a sense of ability to be okay with who you are is really a prerequisite of full emotional and sexual intimacy. And I don't mean the prerequisite, like you must achieve it before you can have any, but, but a lot of times we're looking to our partner to tell us we're enough to tell us sexually we're okay. And we're looking to somebody who doesn't have their gas tank full. How are they going to fill up ours? (laughs) So that, that anxiety and that dependency on the other tends to break down. Yeah. And so the work of our own development is sort of laid at our feet in marriage. And the more we see that, the more hope we have for being able to solve it and to bring more strength to the partnership. Can you, I, th- I feel like I've, uh, sorry, Jeff, I'll let you talk for a minute here. <laughs> in a second, <laughs> one more question. But can you talk a little bit about the difference between uh, intimacy and validation, like seeking for validation? Sure. That, good question, because I think, and you know, I'm drawing on a lot of Schnarch, Dr. David Schnarch's uh, thinking on this, but intimacy is, in the true f- sense of the word, is the willingness to be knowable. So it's a unilateral reality. A lot of writers and thinkers on the topic of intimacy will talk about intimacy as something that's inherently res- reciprocal. You share something and then your spouse validates that and tells you you're not as big of a freak as you think you are, and then you feel better about yourself. <laughs> okay. And that it's there's an inherent dependency. And of course, whenever that happens, that feels great, you know, to share something about yourself and your spouse is accepting and that's wonderful. Okay. But when a couple is growing, you're not waiting for validation to let yourself be knowable. Mm-hmm. Intimacy is unilateral, that you're willing to share who you are. Just like today in the case uh, that I was sharing with a group where she stands up and says, this matters to me. That's an intimate move. She's showing her mind. She's showing her heart and without bullying and without masking. And so intimacy takes courage because you don't know if you're going to meet it or criticism. So to create, all of us want to be validated in marriage, okay? All of us want to partner with somebody who tells us from now until the day we die that we're the most amazing person on the planet. Like, who doesn't want that? But if, but very few of us want intimacy, which is to have somebody who really knows you, flaws and all, limitations and all, indulgent behaviors and all. We want our partners to go blind to those things in the name of love. And if you're really going to have an intimate marriage, then you have to be willing to take a hard look at who you are and who you aren't yet. And that's harrowing and uncomfortable, but that is, that is the refining process that allows you to be more at peace in your own skin because you're not running from anything inside of you. You're not hiding from any truth. So it's not validation dependent. In fact, to be intimate, you must tolerate invalidation. I love all of this. And it's just, we talk about things that are, are really, you can never perfect them and which nothing can be right. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's just nice Mm -hmm. to see this and think, okay, there's like, there's just this growth that has to happen at all. Like you just, that path of growth in every aspect is like, how do we just 
one step at a time. We're making this happen. We're, we're growing little by little. And so what do you share as far as like, what are some of those initial steps people should take to to start down this path? Because I, I, Mm -hmm. we always imagine, I mean, religiously we talk about like, Oh, heaven. And you know, all these things that are just this perfect existence. Very lofty. Yeah. Right. These, Uh these goals that, that seem unattainable, which in a mortal sense are right. Uh, and even in heaven, maybe heaven isn't the, isn't necessarily this perfect realm. It's yeah. It's a understanding. Yeah. It's it's understanding that it's progress. It's constant progress. Mm -hmm. So not to get, go deep into Mm -hmm. like Christian theology or whatnot, Mm -hmm. but so where, where do people start? Well, one thing I, so I have maybe two thoughts about it. So one thing I would, first of all, just validate this idea that you're saying, which is that part of coming to peace with ourselves as human beings is tolerating slash accepting the fact that we are flawed and in development and we're not going to escape that. And being able to have compassion for ourselves and one another around that fact is very, very helpful and developmentally progressed. Like perfectionism is low level human behavior because it's more around an intolerance of an inherent developmental imperfect process that drives you forward. Mm. So, but where you start, what I would say is the thing that always uh, sort of damns progression or interferes with progression is self-deception. It's the narratives and the stories we tell ourselves that make us comfortable with staying where we already are right now. Mm. You know, again, Very referencing the couple today, which is, you know, her sort of, one of her self-deceptions is, you know, well, I would be more honest about what I want, but my husband can't handle it, so I'm not going to do it. I think that's a self-deception because it makes it look like I would, I'd love to be more honest. It's my <laughs> husband. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and there's an outside there's a, force that's preventing yes, me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And there's enough truth in it that she can carry it off. But the truer position is I'm, I don't want the courage. I would rather resent an outside force than sort of deal with the control I do have and tolerate the exposure and the developmental process that I would subject myself to. But you know, one time when I was like um, an adolescent and I was really trying to, I struggled with some depression. I felt badly about myself and I was trying to find a way to have more honest self-respect and less apology for who I was in the world. And an idea I came across in a book was the importance of being honest with yourself as a fundamental part of honest self-respect. And I, I didn't even understand what it meant. I mean, what does that mean? But I just made a commitment to myself that I was going to be honest with myself, strive to deal with what is true, no matter how much it hurt. And I'm just really grateful to my younger self for that commitment, because even though I still have been blind to things that, you know, even I don't know, two years, I've seen I'm like, oh my gosh, I thought I like really knew my mind and I've still had <laughs> things that I like, I don't see and I don't, and I'm sure there's still things in the future for sure. But my, but my point is that like, that's just going to be an ongoing process development. But the more you're straight with yourself, the more you can deal with what is, and the more you deal with what is, the more honest self-confidence you have because you trust yourself to deal with what's true and make honest, earnest choices in the face of what's true, not in the face of what feels good or what coddles the view of the world you want to have, but that pushes you to deal with the world you're in. 
And, you know, I never, ever enjoy that process. I mean, I, I've gotten, so I trust it more because <laughs> I see that it bears good fruit, but I never, ever like it. My husband and I were on a bike ride last week and we were talking about politics and he was bringing up a perspective that was just stressing me out. And so he, <laughs> and I'm like fighting him on it, fighting him on it. And then I said, the problem is that you're right. And I don't want you to be right. And it really bugs me that you're right. <laughs> but I'm just trying to take you down because you're right. Okay. And it, <laughs> you just defined the, the whole narrative that's happening in our country right now. It's like, that's, I know yes. you're right about this, but I hate you for it. And vice versa. That's exactly right. And so what we do is we vilify the other side rather than dealing with how both sides are right and both sides are wrong and coming together with how we're all like each other. And it's quite terrifying <laughs> because it's an impulse that, it, it, you know, we're really struggling with the worst in ourselves as a country and vilifying one another instead of really looking at how much we are the same and how much we want the same things and may hold different perspectives. But much like a marriage, when you get entrenched in how you're a victim of the other side, you, mm -hmm. you become unable to solve anything. And so you have to go and look at where your partner's right and what you're missing. And it's never comfortable. It never feels good. But I'm always grateful when I do it because I really do get literally wiser. I get more able to, to handle myself in the world. And so it is a gift to yourself to go through that process of being honest. That was a great description. Thank you. Mm. And so it just helped me understand a lot of things. But I was also mm -hmm. thinking... The, the thing that comes to mind when you're talking about this to me is mm -hmm. uh, this idea of, um, so one of my favorite quotes, I listen to Jim Rohn a lot. <laughs> He's kind of a classic mm -hmm. old progress, you know, mm -hmm. personal development mm -hmm. guy. But uh, one of his, my favorite quotes of his is, uh, work harder at your, work harder on yourself than you do at your job. And, yeah. and I think it kind of relates in a sense, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but how I'm understanding it is, it's almost the same thing. It's like work harder on yourself than you are on your relationship and not, not oh, that you're, because in mm -hmm. doing that, you are working on your relationship. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I understood from his comment was like, it's not about not working hard at your job. It's about taking the time to really understand yourself and grow yep. as a person so that you yes. can be better at your job or 100%. you can be better as a husband or a wife. Anyway. Yeah. When you're more invested in the relationship than you in, are in yourself and your own responsibility to yourself and, um, and to your development, you're toast. If, and if, so if you get it now, if you're going to screw over everybody else so you can attend to your narcissism, okay, that's, that's, that's also a problem. <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> but that's not what we're talking about. But see, the part you, the only thing you do have control over is your own morality, your own self, who you are in the world. And as you develop that, you become more capable of intimacy, more capable of investment in others, more capable of trustworthiness because you're living honestly. And so you bless the lives of the people around you. The kindest thing you can do for the people you love is to handle yourself, to bring a calm, centered self to those relationships. When we're looking to get it from those around us, we'll suck them dry and, and it doesn't pay off. You know, you... When you're trying to prop up somebody else's sense of self, you'll do it for eternity. A good therapist or coach is helping people find their strength and their integrity within themselves because then they can be an, a source in their lives and in their relationships. I'm 100% glad we have this recorded because I love that quote. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Yay.
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and, and just practically speaking, I found that the more I have come to grips with my own, my own self and being able to confront things, the easier it is to have intimacy, like be known, mm-hmm. be knowable and mm-hmm. not necessarily seeking for the validation. It's easier to be open and be known. And That's have right. Intimacy. That's right. That's right. You don't have to hide anymore because you know yourself and you know you're flawed and, and you're willing to see things you don't yet see yet because you're not terrified of that prospect because you know you can respond to it and correct it and, and address it as needed. But you, uh, you know the kind of flimsy foundation that a validation-based relationship uh, is. And so you know to kind of move away from it. Mm-hmm. Well, so we are wrapping up a time here because we know you've got a busy life mm-hmm. and, a, and a tight schedule. But we mm-hmm. are so glad you joined us. And where... Should we send people to yeah. well, get coaching the, the, from you and learn from you? Sure. <laughs> the easiest place to find me is just on my website, which is my last name. So it's finlayson-fife.com, finlayson-fife.com. On there, you can see like I have a podcast archive. I have an Instagram and Facebook. I have a Facebook group where people get resources from me, but also also through the podcast. And then also you can see the online courses there as well. So yeah, so everything I offer is there. When in non-COVID times, we also do live workshops, and so hopefully in the spring is looking better. We'll be doing a women's three-day retreat in Oregon, and then a couples retreat um, next fall, so fall of 2021. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, hopefully we can have you on again sometime. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in our show notes below to learn more about where you can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website, her online courses, information about her upcoming events, information about her free Facebook group, and more. Thank you for being here.